place it comfortably. So good morning everyone. First day of session. Um, many of us have been here before and a few new people. Um, but we've got quite an experienced group of people here today who've done practice in one form or another. Um, one thing I've said many times before, but just as a reminder, as a way of understanding the process of doing um, session, is I, I liken, you might find this amusing or not amusing, but I liken all of us to being like drug addicts. We're all addicts here. You know, we're all, we're all suffering from craving of one kind or another. And um, and in the, the first, it's like we're on a ward together, you know, and like if you're on a re, drug rehab ward, first you, you meet everyone at the beginning of the, the introduction and everyone's excited about meeting everyone else and being on the path to recovery. And then sort of after that excitement, we sort of settle into the routine of <laughs> session the first few days, well, it's detoxification. Mm-hmm. And um, whether it was heroin you're on or alcohol or tobacco or marijuana or whatever, you're not getting your fix. You're not getting your fix of being on screens, you know, and being in your habituated way of, of life. It's all been taken away. And instead, um, you're signing up to doing lots of satin, you know, just being in a conscious, just being a conscious being, experiencing time and space without any particular stimulation occurring. Mm-hmm. And so we all go through that sort of detoxification process as we begin. And it can lead, after a day or two, or maybe even on the first day, it can lead to some um, dark experiences, you know, of um, flatness or despair or something like that. And it's, it's useful to understand it in those terms that this is sometimes, I'm not saying that's what everyone will go through, um, but if you do, it's, it's worthwhile understanding that's part of the process of what is occurring. You're being thrown out of your habitual way of, of living um, and, and being encouraged just to turn up to the present moment as it is, and it's a very different experience. It's a challenging experience. Um, but you go through it. It can last, and then usually what happens is it dissipates. Um, and I can extend, you know, the metaphor of, you know, us being on a, a drug rehab board. I mean, you wouldn't come in the first place, and yes, you felt that if you got past this craving, um, that life would be better in some way. You know, it'd be it'd be more enjoyable. You'd be free of it. And we have that aspiration when we come here to get past that grasping, craving sort of nature that leads to a sense of dissatisfaction in our life. We know from past experiences of doing session before or doing practice, you do it, you you come out the other end. And there's a sense of wholeness and a sense of freshness. um, And we, we experience the immediacy of life in a more joyful way. And like in the 12-step program, we're always in recovery. (laughs) So we come back again and again. To give a theme to this talk, um, 
to base it around a koan or a thin story, which is one of my, my favourite um, Zen koans. Uh, a monk, one presumes a Buddhist monk, asked the teacher Joshu, does a baby have the eighth consciousness? Now, I don't know enough about Buddhism to know what the eighth consciousness is, um, but it's some conceptual idea about what occurs in, in the stages of consciousness. And uh, Joshua replies, like a ball in a mountain stream, moment to moment, non-stop flow. Perhaps not the response, the, um, the intellectual response the monk was looking for, but a, an excellent response anyway. And when I think of the, these koans sometimes with the, the serious Buddhist monk asking the Zen teacher a question, it's almost like a comedy act. You know, like the, the Buddhist monk is kind of like the straight man, you know, asking the straight questions. And instead of getting a straight answer, he gets this answer out of left field. Um, but Joshu's motivation here is not to make him look foolish, do you know, or um, uh, just say something silly. He, he, his words are pointing him towards the nature of reality. That is the nature of reality. You reflect what our experience is now. You're a conscious being experiencing space and experiencing the passing of time, and it's a flow. It's coming and going all the time. And Joshua's response to the monk and his response to us is, enter the stream. That's the way, that's the nature of things. Craving is a resistance to the stream. Just enter the stream. You're a ball in a mountain stream. You are the stream. Mm -hmm. um, be that completely, and then you have a different experience of what life is. One of the paradoxes of sitting meditation, as we're, we're all committing to sitting still, as, as still as we can and quiet, and quieting the mind, right? but we're doing that, all of that, we're sitting still, so that we can clearly experience the movement of life. And it's always there. Movement, or as Buddhists would say, transience, impermanence, movement is part of the essential nature of what life is, like the stream. And you sit still and do nothing but just focus on the passing of the present moment. You experience movement. So you're experiencing the movement of your heart, you know, um, pumping blood through your body. You're constantly experiencing the movement of breathing in and out. You're constantly experiencing the movement, if I can put it that way, of sound coming and going, of body sensations coming and going. So while we're sitting still, we're not sitting still to be into some static state, mm -hmm. we're sitting still in order to enter that flow of experience which is coming and going all the time. And it's extraordinary, really. Yeah.
To be a conscious being living in the world is nothing short of a miracle, really. Truly, it's nothing short of a miracle to be turning up and experiencing this. There, as all the philosophers say through various different cultures, there is something rather than nothing. We're here rather than nothing exists. And that's extraordinary. And when we, when we, the best way in my, my life to experience that is to sit still, you know, quieten the mind, don't talk, don't entertain ideas, just turn up to that extraordinary experience of being alive. If we think of the demographic of us as a group, um, we're all very well-educated people, right? And we, we're quite competent in what we do in our life. Um, so there's a good side to that, you know, that we've got intelligence and we know how to use it and so on. Um, but the problem is when it comes to doing Zen practice and doing zazen, um, our well-developed intellects aren't much use to us at all. Um, in fact, they can be a hindrance. Not necessarily, but they can be a hindrance. And uh, because we're so used to conceptualising our experience and using our intellect to... What we're doing is that life is basically a flow and we're using our intellect, we're using words, often nouns, to make the flow into things. They become static, like a, you know, we call things a tree or we've got a number for something, it makes it static and then you can manipulate those representations of reality and work things out and analyse things and it has a lot of uses. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's totally useless here today. Uh Um, So we encourage you not to get into philosophical analysis or psychological analysis or try to work things out. It just keeps you further and further away from the nature of reality. All of that just needs to be quietened for a while. Yes, it can come back and you need to use it in your everyday life, but here it will just get in the way. And so we try to put that conceptualising mind aside and just have a direct experience of what it's like to be a conscious being living in time and space. And time is not something... You've got measured time, right? Seconds, hours, da-da-da. But we really don't know what time is. It doesn't actually... We can't pin it down. And the same with space, we can't pin that down either. Like it's infinite and yet it's here. Mm-hmm. Consciousness, we can't pin that down either. And it remains a mystery. But what we can say about it, two things we can say about it that we can understand. One, it's a stream, it's a flow of consciousness, right? it's a stream of consciousness. It's not a thing, and it's always connected. It's 
like the, there's a subject and object. We're conscious of something all the time. It just doesn't exist as a thing in itself. It's always connected. So like the basic principles of Buddhism, you know, everything's interconnected, including consciousness. It's embedded in everything. And it's impermanent. As soon as we try and make it into a thing and freeze it into something, then we've gone off the track. Um, many people throughout history, some of the greatest minds in history, have um, tried through philosophical inquiry and so on, and through theology, to try to come to an understanding of why we're here, God, metaphysics, philosophical problems. I, I, I do that as well, I, and, and I, I, enjoy, I must say I enjoy doing it too. Um, uh, but it's not going to get you to direct experience. And there's a wonderful um, story I read about the other day, which is about um, the Catholic saint St Thomas Aquinas, who I think lived in the around 12th, 13th century, I may be wrong. But he was a prolific writer, and he wrote like frantically for 35 years, and he's considered up there with Plato and Aristotle in terms of how comprehensive his understanding philosophically of the world is. So he did that for about 35 years. And then he was giving um, mass one day, and then he had this immediate direct, what you might call a mystical experience, or this direct experience of God and reality, and he stopped writing. He never wrote another word again. And apparently he said to his personal assistant, so I don't really want you to make this public, like promise not to make it public because it wouldn't be useful. But everything I've written is a load of rubbish <laughs> uh, compared to what's ex what this experience is. So what's he saying? You can philosophise about this. It's kind of interesting. Um, but that's not what's going to get you into the into this miraculous flow of, of experience, you know, which is kind of vibrant joyful in our life and it's the end of craving because you don't need anything else outside of it. In Zen, um, in Taoism, as you know, um, streams, rivers um, are wonderful metaphors for the stream of life. And, and we're not that we have one right here, but in this whole area of Barrington Tops and the surrounds, we have um, some really beautiful um, uh, river systems and streams, like myriad streams coming down from the tops. And it's a very um, a rich agricultural area in Australia, which is very different from, you know, sort of very drought-prone areas. And we're like all those rivers, like they, they all come from a source, you know, and they all stream down together, running the way. And then the water evaporates and the rain comes down again from the source and the streams come. And it's like, it's a, a lovely metaphor for, for the one and the many. We're all our individual selves, these individual streams, but we all come from the same source. I think it says something like that in the, um, the uh, sutra where we recite um, identity of absolute and relative. 
Even when, if we go back to basic Buddhist psychology, that the second noble truth is that grasping and aversion and ignorance are are, are what um, cause suffering and restrict us in some kind of way. There's a way of seeing those energies as well, like the grasping energy or the avoidant energy. It's kind of like the doing of something or ignorance, just sort of zoning out. Um, they're, they're all can be seen as, they're just energy patterns in themselves. Like, so if you notice those experiences in yourself, just see them for what they are. They're just another flow of energy. That's all. So instead of trying to fight them, you know, push them away, just be aware of them, but just see that they're kind of a stream, or as one of my teachers, Robert Aitken, used to say, just see that they're empty. They, they, they really don't have much substance to them. Just like when you have a stream, you have resistances in the stream. Like you have the pebbles on the bottom, or you might have a tree in the stream and it causes eddies, you know, and bubbles and so on. Kind of that's... Everything is Buddha nature. Everything is the stream, even the grasping and the version, right, is the stream. So just... Just keep emphasising, what I want to emphasise in this first talk is just keep entering the stream. It's all, always there. It's ready for you just to go into it rather than holding back. Mm-hmm. And then your life, your life is very different when you experience it that way. Even if you're experiencing adversity, right, it's different. One of the most uh, wonderful um, metaphors that we have in Zen, uh, which is in Haku and Zenji's Song of Zazen, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. Water is essentially what ice is. But when it freezes and becomes an ice block and becomes separate and looks like a thing, then that's what happens to us as human beings, right? We're essentially water. But we get frozen into what Joko, my teacher, used to say, we get frozen into the, what you call the frozen block of emotion thought. We become a thing rather than a flow, and that's what we think we are. And that's what the individual self-centred ego um, experience is. We're really water. But when we become an ice block, we're no longer aware that we're water. Mm -hmm. And so our task is to melt. Mm -hmm. Melt in the fire of attention. Mm -hmm. When we melt in the fire of attention, we realise that our true nature is water. Um, Lastly, I'd also like to say... um, a few words personally. Um, uh, if you've been listening to some of my Dharma talks, you would have noticed recently I've made reference to a writer called Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who some years ago wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, which is about the divided brain, the right and left hemispheres of the brain and the different functions they have. And I've almost finished reading his um, second book, which are two huge volumes 
Um, they're like two huge Bibles. And I'm getting close to the end now. And like with going on any kind of journey, you, know, you, you take the journey because you want to get to the end. But as I'm getting to the end, like any good journey, I really want to savour the, the different um, experiences along the way and the different insights. But at a personal level, um, reading these books, um, I can't find a better way of, of saying it, but it's deepened my faith um, in Zen practice or just in spirituality. It doesn't have to be Zen in particular. And through the first books I read years ago when I was in my 20s that brought me to Zen practice were the, the many books by Alan Watts. It was a turning point in my life. Right, I, I want to move towards what these, this man is saying. Um, and reading Emma Gilchrist in my older age is kind of like being a like the same kind of experience. It's like it's not a, like a beginning, but it's a deepening a, a deepening of faith. Not that I didn't have faith in the first place. It's just that it's deeper. Um, and. Uh, he, uh, he doesn't, there's only one very short section where he, maybe a couple of pages, actually talks about himself. Um, but what you gain from reading that brief autobiography is someone who's um, a very deeply um, spiritual man and across a wide, and with an enormous intellect that goes across a wide range of different subjects. The reason why I want to mention it is that one of the intellectual constructs that we have in our modern life living in a in a Western country is that we're predominantly influenced by science, which is a good thing. I, I believe in science and, and, and validate science. But it's led to a kind of a skewed way in which we understand our life as human beings, and in a word, it's, you could call it um, reductionistic materialism. Um, and as he goes on to explain in his books, um, a lot of his research is around the different functions of the right and left hemisphere, and, and anything in science is always open to question, but there's a huge amount of evidence that he's developed that the right hemisphere its function is kind of holistic and it's, it's, it's focused in on direct immediate experience of life, moment to moment experience. Um, and it sees things holistically. And the left hemisphere has got highly developed verbal skills, symbolic school skills. What it does, its job is like, a, it's a bit like a computer but its job is to make representations of what was initially represented through the right and try to make sense of it and manipulate it and so on. Um, uh, but what his basic statement is, is that the left hemisphere in modern life has become too dominant. So we believe what this side tells us and we're ignoring this side that's immediately connected in to direct reality. And it's led us to all kind of views that we hold um, that material life is really real and things like consciousness, well, it is kind of this kind of ghost-like thing that's evolved or added on 
but you can probably reduce it to electrical impulses or something anyway. Um, he, does, he does an excellent job on demonstrating through scientific research, through his own, re, own philosophical inquiry and the, and, and the philosophical works of many, many different people who, you know, some of the greatest thinkers we've had, that it's not proven at all that that is an understanding of what our life is about. Mm-hmm. And it puts consciousness in the box seat. You know, so we, we know what consciousness is. We may not be able to understand it scientifically, but we know it like drinking, like the taste of water or the taste of an apple. We know what it is to be conscious. And the consciousness is like the water and the ice, you know, like it forms into material forms. But everything at, at essence, is consciousness, right? So we undervalue that. And what we also, we also get science sort of um, fed up to us that we have a, a selfish gene. It's never been proven. It's even poor science if you, if you look into it. Um, and the sense of the sacred in things, you know, and, and like the, the vibrancy and the creativity and the free will and the, the energy for renewal it's all kind of being diminished through this concept. And, um, and I'm, I'm so glad that someone's written a book to challenge all of that um, because it, it's a construct in our mind, consciously or unconsciously, that shapes the way that we experience ourselves or understand ourselves. And it's not the only way of doing it. Um, and spiritual traditions like Zen, Sufism, Christianity, contemplative Christianity, um, um, indigenous religions are all connected into direct experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do today. We come back to the direct experience of moment-to-moment life.